Welcome to the Maternity and Midwifery Hour, brought to you once a week by the Maternity and Midwifery Forum. This podcast is supported by Matflix, video streaming from maternity experts. All your CPD needs made easy. If you need to get your revalidation done or have a student project to complete, Matflix is the one-stop shop. And welcome, everybody, to this week's Maternity and Midwifery Hour. Now we're session four of series nine. I have to keep saying that because it seems amazing that when I started in March 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was just going to be for a little while. And now we're a kind of regular feature, which is fantastic. My name is Sue MacDonald and I'm the curator for the Maternity and Midwifery Festivals and the Maternity and Midwifery Hour. And it's my pleasure to be here this evening with you. And I've got two lovely guests. I have Leslie Turner and I have Elizabeth Duff. So welcome. Elizabeth and Leslie, and because we always do this with our guests, we always ask them for a moment of the week. So could I perhaps ask Leslie for her moment of the week? Yeah, thank you, Sue. So after we spoke on Monday and you asked me to do this, I did have some inspiration and a most lovely email from a student, and she had just had her exam results and the board had just set, and she said to us that she, to thank us for all the help over this unprecedented times because she trained in COVID. She said how much she'd grown over the last three years and she wouldn't be where she was today without us. And it was just such a lovely email, but she said that she'd continue on her journey to be the best midwife that she could be. And it was really touching. So that is my moment of the week. Oh, Leslie. Leslie, I've got a lump in my throat. So it was lovely, really lovely. lovely. Absolutely. Now, those of you who are students out there, you need to kind of, I'm not saying you need to go and compliment your teachers, but you need to remember your midwives as well to give them feedback, hopefully good feedback. But that's a lovely, lovely thing to have said to you because it you know, it means a lot. To give it? permission to share it on here today. So Fabulous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's lovely. Thank you very much. How about Elizabeth? How about your moment of the week? I like oh, to put you well, on the that, spot. That, that was such a great thing for Leslie to talk about. <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, you said we could have something that's very simple and domestic. And in fact, just now, um, that recently a couple of friends of mine have very kindly given me um, spring bulbs and little pots oh. to um, have indoors. And I, I went into our dining room and the hydrangeas have just flowered and they were absolutely filling the room with their fragrance. Some people don't like hydrangeas, but I do. And it really mm. felt like spring flowers and spring yeah. is just around the corner. So it might be a bit corny, but it's it cheer um, <laughs> me up smelling that and seeing the colour. I don't think it's corny at all, Elizabeth. I think what's lovely now is the sun's coming out a little bit more and the Mm. flowers are coming out in the garden. It is, it does feel as though spring might be coming. And I know that someone, some of the weather people are talking about another cold front, which is a bit sad. I'd like Mm. some more of the spring flowers. So thank you. That's lovely. Good start to the, the, evening we're going to come back to our lovely guests but I just do my usual thing of just reminding people and I'm and actually what I must remember to do is say a big welcome because we have at least 200 people there now for us here it's just us in a nice little cozy zoom room but it's lovely to think of you all there all over the world and we've got people literally from all over the world so welcome to people from togo new zealand the netherlands uganda trinidad um nepal new zealand did i say that saudi and i'm looking away my other screen so i've got all this on my other screen australia and cyprus so welcome everybody and i hope you enjoy this evening now we we this whole maternity and midwifery hour really came from the pandemic. We started to make sure that midwives and student midwives and people in maternity care could really link up at a time when it was very difficult. We didn't have study days or conferences or festivals, and we needed people to get information to get continuing professional development so they could get on with their revalidation. Um, but also to have information especially around COVID. Now, of course, the quality of the information now, we've changed it. So there's more updated information, not so much about COVID, though we do still mention it sometimes because it's still around. Um, But we we do have 
a whole bank of information. So I need to remind people, if you're just watching for the first time today, it's useful to know this. All of our work is recorded. So if you miss anything or you hear someone talking about something, you think, oh, that sounds good. Go to Mapflix. It's all free to action. You can get anything you like. There's a massive amount of, of um, presentations. I think we're up to about a thousand and a hundred um, on all sorts of topics. You can do a search and find lots of information. If you want to have something more kind of directed, there's a whole lot of um, box sets, which Dr. Jenny Hall curates, and she does beautiful little collections with reflective activities and all sorts of additional information. So that's very good if you're doing a particular project or assignment. Um, do access that. It's really helpful. Um, also, we, we'd love to you to share. So if you enjoy tonight, which I know you will, share with your colleagues, get them watching, get them in, involved as well. It's lovely. And I'm going to say a big thank you to our lovely midwives, our student midwives, maternity care support workers, all of the people who work in maternity services and who are working so hard. And I know it's a difficult time because we're getting over COVID. We've, there's some places are having to get over the flu at the moment. And of course, most places are short of staff. And we're going to be talking a lot about that. That's our topic of the, of the day or the week. Um, but there are people who are having to cover sickness and absence, having to work hard to keep that standard of work. So a big thank you to all of those people all over the NHS, actually. I'm very proud of, of the RNHS. And I'll, I'm, I want to say a big thank you to anyone who's working in the NHS, actually. Um, and also, I just want to, again, and I know I say this every week, and you might say, oh, she's on about it again. Please look after yourselves. You need to look after yourselves as you look after others. If you could look after yourself as well as you look after others, you'll be okay. So thank you for that. Now, I'm, I've got just a, a quick news feature. I'm going to remind people there's the Dark Lens Conference coming up, and this is celebrating Black and Brown Excellence in the Perinatal Period program looks fantastic. And it's a virtual event on the 3rd and 4th of February. So just do just Google to find information on that. On that point, most of the information you need is on the resource sheet that, that is with this um, live session. So you should be able to get in. Right. Today is a, a World Interfaith Harmony Week. Part of, part of it anyway. But uh, there's not very much harmony around, except there's been quite a lot of industrial action. There's been uh, marches in Leeds, in Manchester, in London. This is all in the UK. There's a lot of um, unhappiness with what's happening at the moment. And I know the, the teachers and the civil service and university staff and train drivers were taking industrial action today. Um and we'll we support them in getting some resolution to this this that the um difficulties at the moment is a difficult time to be in public service that's for sure and also i want to say a thing about i always have a favorite tweeter anyone who knows knows i love tweeting and my fa favorite tweeter this week is martin lewis who's reminding us and he's the money saving expert and is reminding us just to make sure you've got your passport up today now for some of you be thinking what's she talking passports holidays i haven't got time for holiday but you might have and you need to book something at some point anyway passport prices are going up so keep a, an eye on that the other bit of news is baroness julia cumberledge who is well known to midwives in the uk as being someone who's been so important in improving care and continuity of care for women and babies in the uk is actually stepping down from the nhs and um, NHS England Transformation Board. So we salute you, Julia. We're going to miss you in your role, but I know you'll be around doing something with the maternity care because you're just there all the time. Also, Women's Institute, and I think probably Elizabeth is going to maybe refer to the, the Women's Institute, do a lot of good work. They're flagging up showing the love, power of green hearts to indicate we need to see action on climate change. So with all with all that's gone on with 
COVID, maybe climate change has sort of gone to the back of the, the queue, but we need to be looking at it. And I think I'm right on target now because this week we're looking at a postnatal care with the, the old Cinderella of the maternity services. And I'll probably have Elizabeth squeaking at me for that. But it's a, one of the terms that's been used ever since I was a student midwife, which was in the dawn of time. And it's still mentioned now as, as something we need to address. So this week, we're going to be looking at some of the factors that contribute to better outcomes for women and babies and families in their experience of care, especially within inpatient services and Leslie is going to be sharing findings of her research from with into the outcomes and it's I'm personally very interested well I'm very excited about this because a, a long time ago I've read some research on nursing staffing which clearly said where you've got more qualified staff the outcomes are better and I always thought why aren't we doing this in midwifery well I think you'll find Leslie doing a little something here. So I'm really so delighted to welcome Leslie Turner. She's previously worked as a midwife in local trust and has close ties to practice. I know her heart's very close to clinical. And her previous roles as clinical educator and practice development uh, midwife in, enable her to supervise the development of clinical skills for midwifery students. She oversees student supervision and assessment, and she's completed her master's in public health and is dual qualified as both nurse and midwife. And she's also an autism ambassador, keen to promote inclusion and support for students and staff with autism. Really good to, to, for you to be here. Thank you so much for being with us, Leslie. The screen is now yours. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm delighted to be here. So thank you for inviting me. And um, so I'm Leslie Turner. You've introduced me beautifully. Thank you, Sue. Um, I'm a PhD student as well as a lecturer. So I'm in my third year and I'd love to acknowledge my supervisors. So Professor Peter Griffiths, Professor Jane Ball and Dr. Ellen Kitson Reynolds, all here at the University of Southampton. So my topic is on staffing. We do lots of research about staffing here in our unit and also on postnatal care. And you'd be surprised to hear that there is no minimum standard for staffing in hospital wards and particularly on postnatal wards. And I was quite surprised about this because you have minimum levels for creches, for schools, for other public services to say there should be one person responsible for so many people, but not in these wards. So um, that's quite surprising. Uh, we do have the standard of one-to-one -one care in labour, but that doesn't extend out onto other areas of maternity. So that is a, is a surprise. And with the rising complexity of women, then postnatal care is really important. And we know that they do have lower satisfaction with postnatal care than antenatal or labour care, but nobody really talks about it. So it's an area I was really passionate to look at because it has such a long-term impact on women and families and babies um, in terms of mental health, breastfeeding, bonding, all of those things, if we don't get postnatal care out. Um, and the effect of staff themselves. So um, we've talked about burnout in the past, but how much workload are staff expected to manage on postnatal wards? And that is really the key that I wanted to look at in terms of trying to influence policy and research and practice. So that's the topic for my PhD, but I'll take you through the steps as to where I've got to so far. So moving on. So in 2020, when the world closed down and went to sleep, uh, we started our literature reviews. So we did a review to look at how many studies are out there, um, what do they say? Um, do they agree with each other? Um, and we found very little evidence, actually, um, about this. And the question was looking particularly about the quantitative association. So we were looking at the numbers to see, is there an association between staffing levels and skill mix? And then relating that to outcomes for mothers and babies. That was the question. And it hadn't been looked at since 2015. So it was looked at before the NICE guidelines came out. And at that time, there were only eight studies that they had found. So we found that we had really something to contribute because we'd found 21 studies. And I think a couple more have been published since that time. And it confirmed what we knew, really, is that increased staffing levels is improved in 
associated with increased outcomes. And you can see in the middle of the slide here, some of the outcomes that were improved um, and some of the adverse events that were reduced as a result of having better staffing. And this research came from all over the world, so from 10 countries. And in fact, nine of the 21 studies came from the UK. Um, only three studies included support workers, but actually there's not as much evidence as I thought. And I've been working with the researchers who were doing a lot of the nursing research and they've got oodles of studies and we have just very few in maternity. And I was quite surprised that there wasn't more. Um, but you'll notice that a lot of this is in labour. So in terms of the gaps, um, you can see I've highlighted postnatal care, but there were other gaps. So there's not much research on antenatal care. Um, there's not much research on support staff, even though we're using more support staff and they definitely contribute to care of families. Um, and there wasn't much looking at midwives combined with obstetric and paediatric staff. So we couldn't really look at the family as staff and how they work together. And really the outcomes they looked at could be expanded. So in the nursing literature, they have something called nurse sensitive outcomes, which actually, or indicators, which actually are indicators that are known to be sensitive to staffing. Things like falls and things like pressure, air, pressure ulcers um, are sensitive to staffing in nursing. We don't really have that field well developed in maternity. Um, we do have some red flags that have been developed, but most of those are labour. And I'd like to see some more of those in postnatal care, um, red flags for low staffing. But anyway, this is the list that I came up with, things that I thought potentially could be sensitive to staffing that need to be studied in the future. And I can't do all of this, but these were the things thinking through what could we possibly study what outcomes could we look at? So things like uh, wound infections, whether documentation has been done properly, whether the meow scoring has been done efficiently and escalated. Um, missed care, there's a whole body of literature talking about missed care. So care that has been incomplete or delayed care even. Um, and then some of the outcomes for um, neonates, so breastfeeding rates, weight loss, jaundice, I could imagine all of these things could be influenced by staffing. And then other things like mandatory training, I'd quite like to put on their supervision of students actually for our student population. And the quality of the studies themselves could be better. So a lot of them that I looked at were cross-sectional, but we could do with more longitudinal studies and possibly more individual patient data studies. So they were, there's a whole more PhDs in here really, but um, this is what we identified. I still wanted to look at postnatal care though, because that was my passion. But I asked um, service users and staff which outcomes to look at. So we did a consultation. So in a lot of research studies, you it's advisable that you do something called PPI, so patient and public involvement. So this was my PPI part. Um, I did this in April 21, and this went out on social media. And um, 17 staff members and 28 uh, women and families contacted me to say what they thought was important. Uh, the women and families said that they wanted more information in the postnatal period, that they wanted more physical help. So some, some of them had had interventions and they were struggling to mobilise with pain relief. So they wanted more of that help. They wanted help with feeding. They said they really wanted some help to get to sleep. So these no wards are noisy and that, um, yeah, that rang true for me really. They can be really noisy places. Uh, the midwives told us that I should look at satisfaction. So patient satisfaction, delays in care, admissions to neonatal unit and the quality of their interactions with women and families. They thought those could suffer. And now I'm just gonna tell you briefly about the two studies that we've completed and published. So the first time we looked at experience of care, so we wanted to look at uh, women and families' experience of care. And I was lucky enough to find a data source, which is the maternity survey. And this is done every single year in February. I'm sure some of you will recognise this survey. And the data is publicly available through the UK data service. You have to request it, but you can get hold of this data and you can match it to all sorts of other data sets. So I matched it to the staffing data set. And I firstly looked at the trust levels. So how many midwives do we have in each trust? 
Um, and this is the analysis I'll show you first. So it was a survey. It went out to all women who gave birth in 2018 in February. And the response rate, I've got it somewhere, 37% response rate, which is not too bad for a survey. And I picked out four questions in that survey which related to postnatal care. But if you want to do more research, you could look at other questions because there's loads of information in there. And I would encourage you know, researchers to maybe look at this. Um, but the four questions I clicked out were to do with delays in discharge, uh, whether they felt staff um, helped in a reasonable time, were they given information and explanations, and were they treated with kindness and compassion? And for three out of four of those outcomes, trusts with a higher number of midwives in the organisation scored much better. And you can see some of the statistics here is that they scored much better in three out of four. And the fourth one with kindness and understanding, there was no difference. Um, but this gives us some evidence that staffing improves the patient experience, which is what we haven't really got already. So that's new. Um, and in terms of the size of the difference, we estimated that about 6% um, fewer women would have a delay in discharge. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you multiply that up through the whole country, that's actually quite a lot of women potentially benefiting. Uh, the next part of the research, so this is a second analysis. Um, this was also done on the same maternity survey, but it was done the year later in 2019. And I chose the year later is that there was a new data set on the block called Care Hours Per Patient Day. And this data set adds up all the staffing hours in, in that period. And it also adds up how many women were on the ward at midnight. So you get some idea of workload. And it's also um, at a ward level. So I can drill down to see what's going on on the ward rather than just what's happening in the organisation. Um, and so there were real benefits to using this data set. And also it told me about support worker staff for the first time. So that was really good. Um, and what we found in the top box, you can see that the findings were very similar to the other analysis. So at trust level, the number of midwives in the whole trust did seem to influence the quality of postnatal care. Uh, the middle box was a bit surprising because when we looked at the midwives on the ward, at the ward level, postnatal wards, we found that the relationship that we thought would be there, it wasn't there. And one of our explanations, it might be that the midwives might be there on paper, on the rosters, but are they really there all the time? And, and I've seen in the literature and I've seen written down that during a shift, sometimes midwives from the postnatal care wards are often moved to support labour care and it could be that they're on paper but they're not always there and I'm told that anecdotally that that happens um, in practice um, and in the bottom box we did find a positive relationship between support workers and women saying that they had help when they needed it and they were treated with kindness and understanding which shows some support for their role in that area. Um, but this analysis is not all. So I've gone on to look at safety and outcomes. So this is just patient experience. And this is what I'm working on at the moment. So I've got a new data set. I love data. Um, a new data set from the Workforce Health Outcomes Study, which is a huge study. Um, it's individual patient data and it covers four trusts over five years. And I'm able to look at the box, the outcomes in blue. So readmission rates transfers to neonatal unit or back to labour ward, some adverse events and mortality. And I'm hoping this is quite a strong design, having a longitudinal design. We're linking directly. We know what exposure of staff that women have had, and we can link that to their outcomes. I don't have any results to share with you just yet. So that's just coming. And then finally, what does this contribute? So why does this matter? Um, is that we've been able to use quantitative methods, which is just one type of research, but we've been able to link patient experience and hopefully outcomes, but we're working on that, to staffing and skill mix. And it just gives us more information about staffing and it gives us that evidence we really need. Um, so this is the additional studies that we'll hopefully publish and it supports midwifery and support worker staffing. Um, we have used a rigorous approach and we've published in peer review journals. So we have had the work scrutinised. 
but it really spotlights postnatal care and why staffing matters and which outcomes could potentially be affected. And I think that's really important. Um, we haven't been able to do everything, so we haven't been able to account for things like staff training, um, whether they're following best practice and culture, um, and things like continuity models. So we haven't been able to do everything, but we have been able to demonstrate a link between staffing and outcomes and experience. And we are delighted that um, our work was noticed. So in on Twitter, Professor Jane Sandal uh, retweeted one of my papers, and Elizabeth Duff um, retweeted it again, and she said that this evidence underlines the urgent need for better care um, on post-date awards. And she's going to come and talk to us about that. But, um, thank you very much for listening. And these are just my acknowledgements at the end. So thank you. And any questions later, I'm very happy to talk about it. Okay. Well, thank you for the reminder, Leslie, to the audience to... If you've got questions, start putting them in the chat box because then they'll come through to me and then we, we can discuss those after uh, Elizabeth's session. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in these paper midwives. I think <laughs> I've got this this picture of paper midwives and, and we know it happens, but it's good to have it kind of recorded in that way because that's actually having an effect, isn't it? Because you're not able to get the evidence you were looking for. And I love the family of staff, that, that other term that you use. So I'm going to look forward to the questions coming through. So we've got our second speaker, the lovely Elizabeth Duff, who we've had before. Um, and you're, so people will know Elizabeth very well as the Senior Policy Advisor for the NCT since 2009. And she's got a wide portfolio covering um affecting patients during the first 1,000 days, childcare provisions and to maternity pay also. She's a very experienced speaker and she champions, very much champions the needs of parents at a national and international level. She's been in journalism and communications. She's chaired the Camden Community Health Council and been the vice chair of Camden Islington Maternity Services Liaison Committee. She also writes very much, as well as tweeting um, for Midders and the Midders Digest. So welcome, Elizabeth. The screen is now yours. And it's Thank great to see you. Thank you very much indeed for that um, lovely introduction. Um, I'm uh, always worried when people describe me as an experienced speaker. I mean, for a start, it sounds like I've got a lot of grey hairs, which is true. How wonderful, actually, to follow Leslie, who has presented, um, as she rightly said, research with a rigorous approach and properly peer-reviewed. Peer I'm not going to talk about um, research like that. Not too many slides, fortunately. So we now are at the beginning. Um, apologies for that. And I will try and make sense now. So here we are. Um, the NCT um, responded to a call last year from two all-party parliamentary groups, the one on maternity and the one on baby loss. Both of those groups, obviously uh, made up of MPs and supported by um, maternity organisations, were desperately worried about the issue that we are all we all know about lack of staffing in maternity care they were called out to um all sorts of organizations including ourselves for evidence to show uh how this was impacting women so the nct where i work was able to carry out uh, a pretty quick survey again i'm we are uh, my colleague jennifer holly who actually carried it out was keen to say this is not uh, a rigorous approach it was carried out via social media and we knew that that wouldn't be demographically representative but the sort of responses that we got were uh, matched up so much with what we were hearing elsewhere. We're not uh, so worried in this case about full representation, because I don't think many people would argue with the sort of comments and numbers that came back. Um, so it was called, um, it is about women's experiences in maternity care. It was uh, women who gave birth within 12 months before 
um, July last year, so it's 2021 to 2022. And the actual title is a quote from what one of the women very tellingly said, too few midwives are carrying too heavy a load. And I imagine that will resonate with a lot of people who are actually in the service and, and those um, outside it, but knowing what's going on. We asked questions of women which were um, partly based on some of the questions that um, appear in the Care Quality Commission Maternity Survey, which Leslie uh, talked about just now. Uh, they were also designed to identify the red flag events, uh, which are criteria defined by NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Uh, and red flag events show where delays or um, inadequate care happens because the staffing is not up to the level it should be. Now, my first few slides are referring to maternity, the maternity journey of women overall, and then we'll move on to postnatal. Uh, but these do show that there were a lot of red flag events, far too many than should have been happening. They're not necessarily dangerous. It may be a delay that actually um, doesn't have an impact on the outcome, but some of them certainly will. I wanted to put this in. This is an absolute, um, obviously, the words from one of the women who responded. And it is a very nice thing to read because in spite now, I beg your pardon, these slides are moving themselves. But to give you a chance to read this, uh, this is a woman who had um, some troubles in what, what was happening during her birth, but she absolutely appreciated the way that the midwives were cheerful and caring and kind, and I love it, upbeat and perky. I know a lot of midwives can't say they feel that, but obviously for this lady, fantastic. She got that impression. But she knew they had a lot to do. They were on the clock. They were experiencing long and unsociable hours of work. And that obviously came over in spite of the fact that she describes her care as amazing. And we did hear this sort of uh, comment quite often. So we asked about personalised care. And around 65, just over 65% of women did feel listened to nearly all the time. So around two thirds, that's good. But unfortunately, um, that's a third or more than a third who did not feel listened to. And that is something we don't want to see. We go on to ask about women having the right amount of time and information and support to make a decision. Decision making is very important. Perhaps it might be said more important in intrapartum care or late pregnancy. But um, apologise for this moving back and forth. I think the slides are moving um, before I'm clicking, but let's try and um, keep to it. So around half women did not have all the time and support they needed for decision making, quite worrying. Now, delays in care, unfortunately, this is even worse. Only 44% of women said they were always able to have the care they needed in a timely fashion. And the delays were most common after giving birth. No great surprise because of all the things we've heard. Now we move on to the more uh, detailed description of postnatal care. And unfortunately, these are the words that were used quite, you know, un unsolicited um, by women, uh, carnage and hell and total chaos. That was how women felt when they were in the postnatal ward and described their own feelings as unsupported, abandoned and unsafe which is a desperately worrying thing. We know that women are very vulnerable at that time. Their babies are vulnerable. They worry about the babies. And some of them are, it is the beginning of really poor mental health because the anxiety is so um, damaging shortly after often quite a worrying birth. And um, this is clearly something that needs to be addressed. This is again a long description. Um, uh, the um, uh, a woman who described being very aware of the lack of midwifery resource. Again, these things are clicking on without my doing so. I do apologise, and I hope that's not spoiling the um, 
um, uh, the, the way you're absorbing what I'm saying. It's very sad here that she describes staff in tears due to the pressure they were working under. Again, she's expressing her own sympathy. Uh, she knows that's not the, the, the fault of any individual member of staff. But the result is, as in her last few words, I didn't feel my baby and I were safe. And again, this is, as, as you'll all feel, I think, very heartbreaking to read. It's an awful environment for the midwives and the support workers, and it's an awful environment for the mothers and their babies. And many of them said they just wanted to get out. But of course, discharge was quite often delayed as well. At the end of the report, which has been written up um, around this survey that we did, and I'm sorry to say there have been delays in actually publishing this, and of course it is, um, uh, it would be that it's actually going to come out next week, and I'm hoping we may be able to add the reference to um, the re to, to the list of references that Sue will be putting together by the end of the week, but in any case, it will be out there. So we had eight um, recommendations at the end of our report altogether. Some of them are what you might say is the very obvious ones, but you can't leave them out. They resonate with a lot of recent reports, such as the um, uh, Ockenden report on Shrewsbury and Telford, the Kirkup report on East Kent, and so on. Investing in the workforce, um, listening to women, promoting relationship-based care, better multidisciplinary teamwork. Um, number seven, we have put in enabling partners presence at in-hospital postnatal care. I know that this is improving as time goes on, but certainly last summer and the months before that, women were still having that damaging impact from the lockdown era uh, restrictions where they found their, their partner was only able to come in in some cases for an hour a day. I think one woman found she hadn't, she wasn't able to for him to come in at all um, in the postnatal ward. And that was absolutely impacting because this um particular individual woman, um uh, the effect of her epidural lasted quite a long time, so she couldn't walk at all. She was not able to get help to get to the bathroom. She couldn't reach any food and water, and she couldn't reach her baby. And nobody came when she asked for help. And that, again, was an absolutely catastrophic um, experience for her. What I want to go and talk about, and it's a little bit more positive, I hope, um, we put in as our last recommendation on postnatal care, we want to bring together a coalition of policymakers, service users and professionals on postnatal care. And we want to call for a complete end-to-end -end review of this period of care. Um, ideally, from birth to more than six weeks, because I think many, many women need more Care. And we know, um, looking at the results, for example, from the Embrace report, which looks at um, the very tragic deaths that happen up to a year after birth, and some of those are pretty much relatable back to what happened at birth or in the early weeks, so we think probably should be longer. But we would like to see a national level um, review, um, which could look at the whole area Often, and here I've put the problems, particularly postnatal mortality, are due to mothers falling through the gaps between those threadbare services. And you will know them. It moves with the woman from the acute care area in a hospital to community midwifery, sometimes from a different trust if the woman has given birth out of her immediate area. Uh, the midwives visit as much as they can, but sometimes only one home visit in the first few days, and the care swiftly passes on to the health visitors who are employed and commissioned by local authorities. And in many cases, um, we've heard of health visitors having a caseload of over 700 families, and that pretty clearly means for the next few weeks um, many women and their babies are not receiving a visit at all. They may be told to go to a surgery or um, a hub or a, um, a clinic somewhere, 
but especially if they've had a difficult birth, a cesarean birth, where they're told not to drive, etc., they won't be able to get there, and they're getting pretty much nothing. We know that most women now are getting a check from their GP, but it isn't always what they expect. Um, some GPs have not been uh, trained and refreshed in this area, so they're not absolutely up to date. We know that's not anyone's fault. GPs have had a extremely pressured time over the last um, few years, and it's not possible for all of them to have carried out the right training. But it is; it does show that postnatal care at the moment is sometimes provided by four different institutions. Information doesn't always pass from one to the other. Um, all those professions are overstretched and understaffed. And um, it means that women are falling through the gaps between them. So one thing we are going to do is respond to the health, uh, the health and social care committee in parliament is launching an inquiry into prevention in health and social care. Now, to my mind, and I hope um, that is in agreement with the MPs on this committee, getting postnatal care improved would be an immense step forward in preventative health care. The number of things that can happen to the physical and mental well-being of both the mother and the baby that result from poor care in the postnatal period is enormous. Um, it may be simply the information that they need in terms of follow-up from some complication of pregnancy uh, or birth, women who suffered from hypertension, from gestational diabetes, from cardiac problems. They need support, they need follow-up, and they need information. Um, for their lifestyle advice, uh, to know whether they need to take certain actions, whether they need to uh, be taking medication and so on. Um, lots of things in that area. Uh, we know that women suffer uh, pelvic health problems after um, a birth. There is more help in the NHS for this, but again, it's not very well coordinated and some women miss out on that and have really distressing problems and incontinence that go right on through the rest of their lives. Um, babies suffer from things that are not picked up when the health visitors are not there to uh, spot um, their physical and uh, emotional and mental development. Things that should be picked up straight away in that postnatal period and onwards from there. You can see from this slide, um, I've got a week to do this and I'm trying to pull together some support and ideas from other organisations and other individuals to try and get this over. Of course, there'll be many other people trying to get their views into this major inquiry. Uh, if we have anything to do with it, we will make sure that we're on that shortlist at least but I hope it will at least make people think postnatal care is not just about midwives, it's not just about hospitals. There's a huge amount that needs doing across all those areas of healthcare, and this could be one way to get the powers that be to think about it. So I'm going to stop now. Thank you very much for listening to me. That's where you can find me if you want to um, read my tweets about postnatal care and many <laughs> other things. And thank you very much for asking me. But of course, also, Elizabeth, you've left your email there. I, I presume have. that you want lots of people to contact you with just ideas, maybe, or comments that can yes, be put in. Uh, anyone who has an idea to put in about this particular um uh, proposal for the inquiry it's got to be very quick and it's got to be very short because we have the the whole proposal has got to be within about 700 words and that's not very oh, much gosh. No, it isn't. Uh, yeah it's got to be very concise and I'm finding that um, extremely <laughs> difficult because yeah, sure. as you know um, Sue I can uh, go on forever just turn the tap on <laughs> and I'll go on talking about postnatal care so mm. I will absolutely have to be shut up about this but it's a very good discipline to yeah. uh, try and get it short. But it's a great opportunity I mean thank you for sharing that because now we've got some of the work that's been done and, and some of the work in progress and I think that's useful for midwives to know that it's not just 
sitting there on a on a in a, on a cupboard like my books it's actually people are actually trying to push things forward and influence policy i mean i love the idea of the national coalition i mean that would really put impact and importance on postnatal care and it might not be lost along the way now we've got some questions coming through now forgive me if i look away every now and then i have two screens and the questions come on my other screen so i'm going to first of all start with some questions for leslie and i've got kim watts hi kim who is saying in several hospitals the answer to low staffing levels is to use registered nurses to help staffing on maternity units rather than midwives did you find any evidence to support this move and its impact on outcomes good question kim Thank you, Kim. Um, yes, I was aware that this was happening too. So in the studies that I was able to look at, then I wasn't able to capture registered nurses. But in the study that I've got in progress at the moment, then I can look not just by having registered staff, but I can look at are they nurses, are they midwives? Um, and in fact, there are very few nurses in the data set that I'm looking at. So I've done the descriptive statistics to look at what I've got, but actually... There are very few registered nurses in those four trusts that we're looking at. So, yeah. And I can also look at nursery nurses and uh, support workers, oh, but okay. I think it might be too soon to look at that data. Um, yeah. And it might be in you know, a few years' time, we might see more nurses in the workplace, mm. possibly, and then we'd be able to tell what effect that might be having. So, yeah, um, yeah. I know the, the Royal College of nursing um, out a document about nurses and maternity which is quite an interesting mm. read and it talked about them not being very well prepared for the role um, mm. and in my library of references that's something that came up is mm. if they are being used actually are they well prepared to take on mm. some of those roles because midwifery is different to nursing but there mm. are some overlap but um it's a really good question, Kim. Thank you. Yeah, so it's a tricky one, actually. And it's mm. sort of the the whole the question and the answer illustrate how different units operate and and how I mean, I instantly think, gosh, nurses, well, they're as they're as precious as midwives. And but they, but your point about being prepared, you can imagine it, you know, mm. when any of you who are nurses and have now come into midwifery will remember how scary it felt and how different it's like a different language different a whole different set of stuff that you do and you don't forget that in a hurry anyway i'm going to get on to the next question which is from sarah and sarah wants to hi sarah says did you identify any particular ideal staffing i assume that's staffing numbers oh. or ratio I would love to be able to do that. But actually, that's really difficult. And a lot of the research, even in nursing, where they've done a lot of research, is it is more difficult to pinpoint what the staffing levels and ratios should be. So at the moment, we're just looking to see, is there a relationship and how strong is that relationship? Um, and actually predict going on to predict what is the optimal relationship would involve fairly complex modeling looking at the women themselves and families so in terms of you know what care what complexity they have um, what dependency level maybe gestation of the baby it would involve quite complex modeling i'm not saying it's not possible but at the moment we're just trying to establish the relationships to see how important is staffing among the other variables? Because actually, when you look at all the other variables all lined up in modelling, you can see that some of them are actually much more predictive than staffing. So a woman's type of birth, um, her age, uh, the gestation, so all of these individual risk factors tend to outshadow staffing. And in fact, there's a, it is an effect, but it's much smaller. Um, and it's quite difficult then to go on and predict to say, if you did this many staffing, then this would be your outcome. Um, we're just at the beginning of our exploration, really. And I was thinking as you were presenting with that big list of, of areas, I thought this is any of you out there who are interested in postnatal research, there's there's huge work and questions to be done. But I was I mean, I was wondering if it's a there's also the model of care, of course, because mm. you can talk about relational care and continuity of care. And did you have different units who had different models of care that you could kind of compare? 
Well. In the scoping review, some of them did have different models of care, and that's they've looked at the staffing compared to their model. But in the review that we looked at, it was just the numbers of whole time equivalents we looked at. We weren't able to get to that data on models of care. Um, but yeah, that's there is a lot more research that's needed in staffing yes. and the way you configure your staffing, not just the numbers. So how they're arranged and how they work together. And there's more staffing now in certainly nursing, looking at um, nurses plus other people, because we know that they are, as I said, a family and you, you and they work together. So it's about how the team works together as well. Um, in nursing, there is some research which does give an idea of safe levels. And this has been mandated by NICE and they recognise mm. some of the research which was done, which was done by Professor Griffiths, who I'm working, being yes, supervised yeah. for. And they found that if you have more than eight patients to one nurse, then um, then they're much more at risk of harm. So and that's not saying that eight should be the number, but actually after eight patients per nurse there's much more risk of harm. And we know that on the postnatal wards. How many do midwives look after if you include the babies? A lot more. A lot Interesting, more. isn't it? Magic. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I have the number eight in my brain. So I think yeah. that's been tweeted and discussed. So thank you. That's great. Okay. And Maxine Aina, or Anna, Maxine, I hope I pronounced that correctly, says the use of MSWs will have a great impact on ward. Do other hospitals do this? I think you talked a bit about uh, healthcare support workers and maternity support workers. I think in the new data that I've got, yeah, all the trusts that I'm looking at do are using maternity support workers. So, but there is no there is no recommendation as to how what the ratio should be, mm. um, and it was anywhere between registered midwives were about sixty five percent to about seventy five percent of the postnatal ward staff. Mm. So. It is quite variable and mm. different trusts do different things, but they might be caring for different types of, of women or they might have transitional care attached to them. So we might see more nurses there. So it is fairly complicated, but it is a new area to research and it's really interesting. I do get a bit lost in the data and sometimes a bit <laughs> sidetracked. So I have to keep bringing myself back to the question because I look at you can look at all sorts of things. So I know. Well, you're making um, you're making da data sound very exciting, Leslie. So those yeah. of you out there, just remember. Okay, so uh, I've now got some questions for Elizabeth because she's having a quiet time now. Um, and this is Amber. Hi, Amber. Says, do any trusts allow partners to stay the night on postnatal wards? Well, that could be either Leslie or Elizabeth, but I'll ask Elizabeth anyway. I, do, I don't have figures and um, I, I do try and listen and see what is happening when people report on that, but I haven't got uh, national data. Um, I do know uh, one or two that do in, in London. Um, it, it obviously during the lockdown time that would have mm. disappeared completely. Um, but certainly one of the North London trusts that quite close um, to me had that in place before. And I believe they have restored that. Mm. Uh, appreciate there's sometimes been problems and some partners haven't behaved in the most considerate way and have gone and used the shower for about 20 minutes when women <laughs> are waiting, which um, oh, no, I, th I think there, are, there really are ways that that if a partner mm -hmm. is going to stay overnight or at any time when it might um, disrupt or upset other women, they've got to be, um, be under agreement to be extremely mm -hmm. considerate, extremely discreet, um and simply stay with their uh partner and baby i i do understand the the difficulties there um so i don't have that data but i do hope that that is being made available especially uh, if a woman has to has uh difficulties in mobility and really needs to be helped and we just know there aren't enough staff to do that mm. Um, so if partners can stay at least perhaps the first night and make sure that the mum is at least up and about and able to do the basics for herself and her baby. Uh, it, it's so distressing to read of women who can't actually reach the water that's been mm. put uh, on the wrong, the other side of the bed or a, a metre away or something. And mm. 
goodness me, when you've been through a birth, whichever sort of birth it is, you need to be rehydrated. Um, you're trying to initiate breastfeeding, uh, 85% of the women do. And that's another thing. Clearly, you need to um, be I think it I think it's sometimes supported helps. and yeah. be able to be yeah. yeah. We we would like every trust to consider that and maximize the amount that they can reasonably enable partners to be there. It just makes sense. I guess it comes down as well to facilities and, and mm. if you've got enough privacy for different groups of, of women and cultures and that sort of thing, and also having you know your own washing facilities for example mm. i love that i've got this picture now of this man or well it could be a, 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 a woman partner in the shower for 20 minutes now that could be very upsetting for women <laughs> they're desperate to get in the shower themselves okay i'm moving us on yeah <laughs> i'm moving us on now um nicola clark says hi nicola says can i ask are nct breastfeeding counselors or postnatal Supporters encouraged to assist in local hospitals and centres anywhere in the UK or Northern Ireland? Well, once again, a very good question to which I, I cannot give precise answers of where they are and, uh, and where they aren't. In most places, we do have breastfeeding counsellors mm. and also breastfeeding peer supporters who are trained to a different level, mm. um, but can certainly help women to, uh, to a certain extent and identify problems and refer to a breastfeeding counsellor. So we, we always offer those two levels um, of help. And of course, we have uh, a support phone line, which is um, is very responsive and breastfeeding counsellors are, are paid by us to staff it and will uh, call women back. And we have an enormous amount of women just expressing so much appreciation mm -hmm. about the, the phone line help they've received. Um, again, of course, at the time when this uh, our survey was held, it was moving Oh, I think we've got a a connection, a connection issue with Elizabeth. So I'm going to sort of move on a little bit while Elizabeth's um, line maybe might get better. Um, Juliet Samuel, hi Juliet, in Essex. Says hi all. Leslie's research has the I potential of highlighting in, in, infection risk. Okay, the, your connection's not very good, Elizabeth. So I'm moving on to a question from Juliet Samuel. Who says Leslie's research has the potential of highlighting the impact of postnatal care due to poor staffing levels. How is this envisaged to impact senior management in care planning in light of current reduced midwifery sh midwife shortage. Great question, Julia. Mm. So impact is something that we do get measured on in universities. So they, when we are funded to do research or we do research, actually, it's really important that we consider the impact and how the work is disseminated. So I'm doing my PhD by publication, which means that I'm publishing as I go along so that the messages aren't lost and they're not old. And um, in terms of impact, by even by coming along today, then that's some evidence of impact. And for all you to think about the impact that you're having and when you're short of staff, you know, what are the consequences? But in terms of policy, I did contribute to that consultation that Elizabeth talked about. So it was an all-party parliamentary group and it went to the House of Commons and the evidence from my report actually did go into that report which is publicly available and I think it might be on the reading list that soon yeah. will disseminate yeah. so in terms of impact and getting the message known is that we do want to highlight the results of our research yeah. and one of the reasons that NICE didn't make a recommendation in 2015 about staffing is they said that there was a lack of evidence so my thinking is oh, that we get the evidence yes and we can evidence that yes. and that was one of my reasons to think well actually there is evidence and we've got it together in the scoping review we're producing more evidence it's a shame that we need it in that way but actually it will be helpful yeah. and i do plan to plow it back as much as possible um I think that's the benefit of this sort of research and being able to publish as you go, because I know some research has to almost keep 
stay a secret until it's published. Um, and so this is really this is really mm. sort of like live research is fantastic. Now I'm going to move. We've just got a few comments because this hour, as I always say to people, this hour goes so quickly. So I'm going to say Amber. Hi, Amber says a lot of po more postnatal information could be shared in the antenatal period to avoid overwhelming volumes after baby arrives. I guess there are staffing issues, time restraints in antenatal care, care too. I think it's all very, I think one of the things that any of us would say is there's a lot of information going to women, but it has to be relevant. It has to be time managed a bit, doesn't it? So that was that. And then I think, I think there's sorry. also, sorry, I was just going to say, I think there's some evidence that women are almost re reluctant to learn things about what happens after the birth, that some women are very anxious about what happens with the birth it it kind of ends for them when they've got a, yeah. a baby in their arms yeah. and we trust and hope that will be the case for all of them um but but sort of learning about what happens after that is almost a kind of of jinx for them so they they shut mm -hmm. it out yeah. um that that won't be for everyone i know a lot of people would like to hear more about what happens afterwards and get that information and uh, i think it's always worth trying because mm. it, it probably needs repeating at every stage because women are have so much to take in they have so many decisions imposed on them uh as we saw without necessarily the right support mm. and just being able to prepare is is, is mm. really helpful and I think, I mean, I think it's like what you were saying about women who, who can't get to the water. I think sometimes practitioners need to remember what it feels like to be yeah. a patient or a client and, and how alien that can feel and how sometimes what we take as normal information that's quite manageable becomes massive for women and their families. I think that's a, a, a good yeah, point. So we've got lots of questions about the NCT. Now, I'm not going to answer them all now, and nor is Elizabeth, but I'm going to say go and have a look at the NCT website, which is fantastic. Loads of information there, all about NCT classes and the breastfeeding counsellors. Um, and I'm going to say I've got one, one comment um, from Kim Watts who says, the issue of no stated staffing levels for the ward is a real issue for management and service leaders in developing business plans for increasing staffing levels. And I think that's a good point, which I think Leslie highlighted. We need that evidence, you know, to, to inform. Um, and Charlotte is asking, do you think by offering more infant feeding support on postnatal ward, this would improve the care? I might mm. throw that at Elizabeth as a final question. Or is it a comment? I'm not sure. It, it, it's one of the things um, I would say very broadly, there's three themes that come up in all the um, responses we've had, uh, lack of support for feeding, and it isn't just breastfeeding, even um, women who've decided to use formula, but they're not sure how to do it, or the baby doesn't take it well, and so on, then they get anxious and um there's their, their own mental well-being is is another theme and of course um damage to the perineum resulting in poor pelvic health um but i it, it isn't just those i know all of those have been addressed to a certain extent in the nhs and i'm glad that they have but it needs a lot of women have comorbidities they may be worried or suffering from one of those things, but also worried because they had gestational diabetes, they had hypertension or something. Um, it shouldn't be different places that they have to go to to get this care. It's very tough navigating that labyrinth of things that are on offer or realising when it's not on offer. Uh, it's really difficult, and these are women who are struggling, caring for a newborn, sleep deprived, um, sometimes very sore or suffering from infections or something themselves. We have increased number of readmissions to hospital, which is horrible for the mother, horrible for the baby and the family and pretty horrible for the hospital. 
Mm. Um, and it is just when the care can improve, so much is going to be prevented mm. that is disruptive to that, uh, what should be um, life of a new family. Mm. Wonderful. I don't know if what Leslie wants to say one or two words as we're coming to the end. Yeah, just really to say that I think the staffing impetus just shouldn't just be on labour care. And I know that's where some of the terrible outcomes can happen, but terrible outcomes can happen in postnatal care. And it can be some time later. So it might be um, psychological health, um, mental health. It could be other things like infections. It, it does happen and a lot of morbidity happens in the postnatal period. So I think when we look at red flags, when we look at staffing, no, don't move midwives from the postnatal ward to cover areas if you can help it because they're there for a reason. And mm. although I can't prove that's that's what happened <laughs> in the staffing, then that's what people tell me that actually you might place midwives there to start with, but they are moved around and it's not been given the priority area that it should it deserves, and those women do deserve better. Um, and I'm happy to be contributing in whatever way I can. Fabulous. And we're back to the paper midwives. We don't want paper midwives. We want midwives where they need to be. Well, thank you. A huge, huge thank you to Leslie and Elizabeth for joining us this evening. It's been fantastic. And I think this debate's going to go on. And I know because Leslie's publishing more day by day. So I foresee that both of them are coming back for a return visit. And I can see by the discussion that's gone on, you'd like them to do so. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to just remind people that the resources are available on the website and on Facebook on Friday. And of course, for those of you who like a six o'clock in the morning podcast, this will also be available on Friday morning. Next week, we've got um, Trixie Macquarie talking a bit of continuity of care, which kind of links in quite nicely don't forget to book in for the safer beginnings conference for healthcare professionals and educators in maternity that's the 3rd of march in in london 10th of march in manchester next tuesday if you haven't booked is the um london festival maternity and midwifery festival on the 7th on the tuesday so I'll see, I'm sure I'll see some of you there, not everybody from all over the world, but thank you so much for joining us all over the world. Um, in the meantime, before we see you next week, stay safe, stay, stay well, and look after yourselves, and we'll see you then. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us for the Maternity and Midwifery Hour. This podcast has been made possible by the team at Maternity and Midwifery Forum and our CPD partners, Matflix. You can sign up at matflix.co.uk.